grab a bowl of conch salad, take a sip of a gombe smash, and listen closely. Because the Bahamas is in all sunshine, this is the dark side of paradise. Greetings, listeners, and thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of The Dark Side of Paradise. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain. I was born and raised in the Bahamas, an archipelago in the Atlantic Ocean made up of over 700 islands and keys. A former British colony, once packed with pirates and privateers, now a thriving tourist destination lined with white sand beaches and luxury resorts. But this paradise does have a dark side. Each episode, you will hear the retelling of crime stories and folk tales from the Bahamas. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Our goal is to shed a light on stories from the Bahamas and to ensure they aren't forgotten or lost to history. We do our best to research each story and to honor the subjects we discuss. Episode 1, The Story of Sir Harry Oakes Harry Oakes was born in Sangerville, Maine, on December 23, 1874. His parents, William Pitt Oakes, a lawyer and surveyor, and his mother, Nancy Lewis, a schoolteacher, worked hard to provide a good life for their four kids. Harry's parents made sure they were all well-educated. He attended the private high school, Foxtrot Academy, then in 1896 moved to Baldwin College, then on to Syracuse Medical School. At 22 years old, Harry gave up the comforts of city living, when he heard of the Klondike gold rush in the Yukon and set off to pursue a career as a prospector. Oakes was unlucky during his time as a prospector and would eventually go on to leave the overcrowded Yukon, deciding to travel abroad. His journeys took him all over the world to places like Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. But this new life of his was not easy or cheap, and his sister Gertrude was often the source of financing that allowed him to continue. Eventually, Oakes would come to learn of large quantities of gold being found in Ontario and returned from his travels to settle there. Once there, he set out on acquiring a stake of land that he thought would be a big producer, but he soon ran low on funds and was unable to properly excavate, so he decided to partner with two brothers in the gold mining business, George and Tom Tuft. After working with the Tuft brothers, he had saved enough money to go back to his original stake and continue prospecting for gold. Oakes poured money into the land he had purchased, but the results were not encouraging, so he decided to start a publicly traded company called Lakeshore Mines to raise funds for the endeavor, convinced that the land would eventually produce. In 1918, Oakes's gamble paid off, and he discovered a rich vein that would go on to make Lakeshore Mines one of the largest producers of gold in the Western Hemisphere at the time. Oakes becomes one of the wealthiest men in Canada and in the world and by the mid-1920s decides to travel, where he meets Eunice. The two are vastly different in age, as she was 26 years younger than the 48-year-old multi-millionaire Oaks. Harry and Eunice decide to settle in Ontario and start a family. They had five children. Harry, William, Shirley, Nancy, and Sidney. He built for his family an extravagant 35-room mansion overlooking the Dufferin Islands in Ontario. The 20-acre estate was dubbed Oak Hall. In 1928, after a devastating hurricane in Florida, Oakes also purchased some partially destroyed land that he would further develop and sell to American businessman John D. MacArthur. This land would go on to become Palm Beach Shores, North Palm Lake, and Palm Beach Gardens. Oakes and his wife were very giving and donated generously to the St. George's Hospital in London and public works projects in Canada during the Great Depression. He donated vast amounts of land which became parts of the Niagara Falls Park 
containing a baseball field, a soccer pitch, and other athletic facilities. When Oakes became a member of the Niagara Parks Commission, he gifted the organization with an amphitheater which was built in 1937. Although he gave vast sums of money, Oakes was also plagued by high taxation from the Canadian government and reported to pay in excess of $3 million a year in taxes. In 1934, Oakes, while visiting his home in Florida, met a man named Howard Christie. He was looking for wealthy investors for a development plan on an island called Nassau located in the Bahamas. Christie, who owned a few pieces of land on the island, told Oakes many of the rich and powerful who lived there did so to avoid exorbitant tax rates of the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Christie proposed land deals to Oakes that were too good to pass up, and Oakes was sold. He purchased a mansion on the island of Nassau called Westbourne, facilitated through Howard Christie, and moved his entire family to the British colony. Oakes' giving nature continued when he moved with his family to the Bahamas, where he invested in numerous restoration projects that revitalized the country's economy, such as the expansion of the country's main airport, he created new farming opportunities and purchased and restored the British colonial Hilton Hotel. Oakes's philanthropic efforts in the Bahamas, Britain, and Canada didn't go unnoticed by the Canadian government and British monarchy, and he was made an honorary baronet by King George VI, which afforded him a title, and now he went by Sir Harry Oakes. Sir Harry Oakes was no longer just a gold prospector who'd struck it rich in the Yukon, but he was a real estate magnate and philanthropic juggernaut of his time. But although generous, he was also considered a shrewd and ruthless businessman by many. Over time, he acquired major acreages of land throughout the Bahamas and developed his own empire on the small island nation. So vast was Sir Harry Oakes's wealth that it's said he loaned money when needed to many of the island's locals and its most reputable businessmen. Oakes and Christie became good friends, and the two had a mutually beneficial relationship. Christie needing to sell and develop land in the Bahamas and Oakes who had no shortage of funds to invest. Christie sold numerous plots to Oakes, and soon Oakes owned a considerable portion of the island's most coveted pieces of real estate. Howard Christie served in World War I with a handful of other Bahamian men before becoming a bootlegger during Prohibition. Christie spent the majority of his life there in the Bahamas, going on to join the government as a representative for the House of Assembly. After years of working together, in 1940, Christie and Oakes would come to befriend another famous man to the island, the new governor and once former King of England, Edward VIII who had been appointed governor of the Bahamas by the monarchy as either a means of hiding him and his wife away from the public eye or to allow him a chance at redemption after his abdication from the throne. The former king of England, Edward, wanted to marry a woman, an American socialite who was twice divorced named Wallace Simpson, the niece of wealthy Baltimore Postmaster General and CEO of the Seaboard Airline Railway, Solomon Davies Warfield. But the monarchy would not approve their marriage, so the King of England, frustrated by archaic tradition, abdicated the throne to his younger brother so that he could marry. Or so the story went. But many historians paint a much darker picture. One that England's government and its monarchy worked feverishly to cover up. That the former King of England and his wife, Wallace Simpson, were Nazi sympathizers while King Edward VIII still sat on the throne. Some historians even claim that King Edward had direct contact with the Nazis through Wallace Simpson, who might have acted as the go-between to help King Edward negotiate England's place in the Reich's future empire. The couple's case against them is only made stronger when months after his abdication, he and Wallace Simpson decided to tour Nazi Germany in 1937, barely a year after giving up the throne. The former King and Wallace Simpson dined with high-ranking Nazi members like Rudolf Hess, deputy Führer to Hitler, Hermann Göring, one of the most senior members of the Nazi party, and Joseph Goebbels, the Reich's Minister of Propaganda. 
The two were even photographed giving the Nazi salute while they toured the countryside. The Duke and Duchess hated what many noted they called exile in the Bahamas and were said to have referred to the island as a third-rate colony. The governor and his wife distracted themselves by socializing with the island's other wealthy inhabitants. They were reportedly close friends with Swedish national Axel Werner Gren, the inventor of the vacuum cleaner and founder of Electrolux, who at one time was one of the world's richest men. Werner Gren owned an enormous mansion estate on Hog Island, what's now today known as Paradise Island, home to the Atlantis Resort and Casino. Not long after arriving on the island, the Duke found himself embroiled in controversy and would have to publicly dissolve his friendship with Werner Gren when the British and United States governments blacklisted Gren for his suspected ties to high-ranking members within the Nazi regime. Gren's yacht, the Southern Cross, one of the world's largest privately owned vessels, was even reported to being used as a refueling station for German U-boats during the war, which were responsible for sinking hundreds of Allied vessels. Gren owned businesses in Nassau like the Bank of the Bahamas, but it was suspected Gren was using the bank he founded to funnel money to the Nazis along with selling them weapons through other companies he owned, and he eventually fled the Bahamas to Mexico when his assets were frozen. The Duke's official duties were not off to the best start. He had to publicly condemn a close friend, and this would not be the first or the last time the Duke would find himself involved in scandal as governor. Either way, the Duke's appointment to the island would bring him neither the fame or notoriety he was once so accustomed to. The Duke and Duchess would also come to befriend Harry Oakes and Howard Christie, and would eventually enjoy dinners and social gatherings at each other's homes. The Duke and Duchess were so close with Oakes, in fact, that for weeks he lent them the use of his 20-room mansion called Westbourne, while the government house that was their residence on the island was being renovated. Oakes was enjoying his newfound life in the Bahamas, his business ventures flourished, but there was something that would disrupt the ongoing fairy tale his life seemed to be. His 18-year-old daughter Nancy had fallen in love and eloped with a much older man living on the island that went by Count de Marigny. No one knew if he was really a count, a described playboy by some. Count Alfred de Marigny was a native of French Mauritania who had made a name for himself as a stock trader in England and had now, like many, been lured to the Bahamas. He was tall, slender, good-looking, and fresh off the boat from his second divorce. But the island of Nassau was small, 21 miles long and 7 miles wide, and everyone on the island, including Sir Oakes, knew of the Count's playboy reputation from the moment he arrived. The island, it thrived on gossip. The Count was an expert sailor, and was envied around the Bahamas Yacht Club for his unrivaled skill, something that would thankfully gain him favor amongst the social elites on the island. It was said, like many on the island who revered the royal status of the island's governor, the Count openly spoke about his dislike for the monarchy and the Duke. The Count and Sir Oakes had somewhat of a mutual respect for one another. Sir Oakes, a fan of sailing, respected his skills as a yachtsman. But that respect soon faded, with the surprise announcement that the Count and Sir Oakes's 18-year-old daughter Nancy had eloped. Oakes even threatened to cut Nancy off financially and out of his will if the relationship continued. This led to public and private arguments, but it said when Nancy became pregnant, she gave her parents an ultimatum, that they accept their marriage or she would disassociate herself from her family. Harry Oakes especially loved his red-haired, fiery daughter who was strong-willed and had a mind of her own just like him. Eventually, Sir and Lady Oakes would agree to their daughter's terms and begrudgingly accepted the count as her husband. But when Nancy had a miscarriage, the relationship continued to be strained.
On the evening of July 7, 1943, Sir Harry Oaks hosted a party at his mansion known as Westbourne. Several guests attended, they played tennis in the day and dined in the evening. But with a storm coming in, many of the guests left early. But one of the guests, Howard Christie, decided to stay. Oaks's family was away at the time, and the house staff were sent home for the evening, leaving the two men alone for the night at Westbourne. Sir Oaks's friend and business acquaintance, Howard Christie, shared a nightcap, and then the two retired for the evening, Oaks to his bedroom and Christie in another, less than 15 feet away. On the morning of July 8, 1943, Howard Christie exited his bedroom in his pajamas and walked a short distance to Sir Oaks's bedroom to greet him for the morning. But instead of finding him awake in his room having breakfast, Howard Christie entered to find his friend Sir Harry Oaks had been brutally murdered. His skull had been fractured, his corpse had been set on fire, and his lifeless body lay covered with feathers taken from a pillow on his bed, the feathers still smoldering while bloody handprints stained the walls. Was it ritualistic? Murder? Suicide? There would be no shortage of theories over time. When Christie first discovers the body, he said he didn't realize that Sir Harry Oakes was already dead and tried to give him a glass of water and wiped his forehead with a towel. Next, Howard Christie contacted Sir Oakes' housemaid who lived on site in a guest house next door. Mrs. Kelly joins Christie in the house where she too bears witness to the gruesome scene. Howard Christie would try to reach the governor, the Duke of Windsor, but before he would reach the Duke, Etienne de Pooch, the owner and editor of the Tribune, the country's major news outlet had called. He was scheduled to conduct a face-to-face -face interview for his newspaper with Sir Oaks that morning, and had called to confirm their appointment. Etienne de Pooch, Howard Christie, and Sir Oaks were all friends, and Howard Christie would go on to tell Mr. de Pooch that Sir Oaks had been murdered. After, he placed a call to the Duke of Windsor and gave him the horrible news. The authorities arrived on the scene and an investigation was underway. Dr. Hugh Quackenbush was the first physician on the scene to examine the body and provided the initial report. He wrote that the feathers were still smoldering when he arrived at the home, indicating the murder had recently taken place. At a later date, the actual autopsy was performed by Dr. Wiley Lawrence Fitzmorris in Nassau. Oakes's skull had been fractured and some speculated that the holes were made by a gun. Only the police force and the wealthy owned guns on the island, and if the murder weapon was indeed a handgun, the list of suspects would include the island's most powerful men and women. A realization, if found to be true, would be detrimental to the reputation of the country. But the findings of Dr. Quackenbush and Dr. Fitzmorris would concur, that the murder weapon would have been a blunt instrument that left triangular protrusions in the victim's skull. Time of death was between 2 and 4 a.m., but this couldn't be exactly verified as the body had been badly burnt. There were blisters on the body, but skin only blistered according to the findings of the two men when there is adequate blood flow, meaning he must have still been alive when his body was set on fire. One of the world's wealthiest men, a sir of the British crown, had been brutally murdered on the beautiful island paradise called Nassau. Once the Duke of Windsor had been informed of the murder, he immediately tried to have the story suppressed from the outside world. He tried and failed to use the wartime powers bestowed upon him as governor to inflict a media blackout on the story. But it was too late for that. Howard Christie had already spoken to Etienne de Pooch, a newspaper editor who had cabled the story around the world and the news was out. During the time of World War II, there weren't many stories important enough to earn the front page spot on the world's major newspapers. But the murder of Sir Harry Oakes did exactly that. The story of the wealthy gold tycoon slain in the Bahamas erupted across Europe and the United States. Reporters flocked to the island to report on the story and the trial that would ultimately follow. 
The case was initially overseen by local police commissioner Reginald Lindrop, but after some major mistakes by the local police force, like the removal of furniture from the crime scene and the allowance of reporters and visitors into Westbourne Mansion, it was decided by the governor that the case best be handled by an outside authority, so he hired two detectives from the Miami Police Department. From the start, the Duke of Windsor sought to oversee and direct the investigation himself. Seemingly, he needed the story to disappear from the headlines of the world's major news outlets. Lindrop, who was conveniently transferred to Trinidad, would have no further involvement in the case, although he conducted the initial stages of the investigation, he would also not be asked to appear during the coming trial. To everyone's confusion, the Duke disobeys protocol by bringing in two Miami police detectives to assist local Bahamas police with the investigation. The two detectives from Florida, whom he had some interactions with in the past, homicide investigator Edward Melchin, who served as the Duke of Windsor's bodyguard on a trip to Miami, and fingerprints expert James Barker of the Miami Police Department. The two men arrived at Westbourne Mansion, it said, with no investigative tools that men of their qualifications would employ during evidence collecting. The two detectives also sought to interrogate the suspects at the scene of the crime. Using local police equipment, they photographed the scene, including the bloody prints on the wall. They brought in others for questioning, but they honed in on one man in particular. He was known to have a strained relationship with Oaks, his arms and bared hair had been singed, and the body of Oaks had been burned. After a brief investigation with the assistance of the local police, the detectives decided they had their man, and the news would send shockwaves through the island that would ripple across the globe. Count Alfred de Marigny, Nancy Oaks's new husband, was charged for the violent murder of her father, Sir Harry Oaks. The local police and two detectives during their investigation found the Count's arm, hair, and beard to have been singed by fire, which he claimed occurred while lighting candles and torches for a dinner party hosted at his home not far from Westbourne Mansion on the night in question. This claim would be corroborated by his dinner guests who witnessed it happen, but the case against Demarigny was strong. Most on the island knew he and Oaks didn't get along. He had singed hairs on his arms and beard, and his finances were reportedly in disarray. Everyone believed the detectives and the police had the right man. The case seemed doomed for Demarigny when the two detectives uncovered a fingerprint on a Chinese screen located inside Westbourne Mansion. They announced it was the fingerprint of Count Alfred Demarigny, proving beyond a doubt that he was in the home of Sir Harry Oakes. It said during the investigation, the detectives contacted Lady Oakes while she waited in Maine to inform her of the evidence personally. It was this discovery that led her to testify against her own son-in-law. The detectives were sure they had their man. Count Alfred de Marigny was interred at a local prison for the murder of Sir Harry Oakes and a noose was ordered for his hanging. In my opinion, his guilt was all but presumed before he even had a chance for his case to be heard. The Duke wanted a quick trial to remove the island from the unsavory headlines from around the globe. The unwanted publicity was hurting the island's image of a safe tropical getaway. The local police and Miami detectives announced that Demarigny had committed this crime and the evidence would prove it in court. While Demarigny awaited trial in what he described as a cell made of thick bars one would see at a zoo to cage a dangerous animal, he requested the representation of the country's most respected attorney, Alfred Adderley, to defend him. But this request would be denied, as Adderley had already been ordered to serve as prosecution for the Crown. Demarigny could only watch from behind a cell as the cards were being stacked against him. He had to rely on the services of two younger attorneys, Higgs and Callender. Although there was enough circumstantial evidence to include other suspects, Demarigny was the only suspect even considered for the crime. 
Nancy Oakes, who was away at school when she received the news about her father and husband, arrived in Nassau, and true to her unpredictable nature, did not accept the official report that her husband had killed her father with the purpose of getting his hands on Sir Oakes's fortune. Nancy was there to defend her husband, and even though her own mother was scheduled to testify on the stand against him, she personally hired one of America's most respected private detectives to carry out his own investigation into the murder. Raymond Schindler was widely known across the United States as being one of the best private eyes in the business. He arrived in Nassau on behalf of Nancy Oakes and reported his findings to her directly. Schindler was being assisted by Leonard Keeler, the inventor of a new technology in crime solving, the polygraph machine. Upon arriving in Nassau, they were given access to the crime scene at Westbourne Mansion and carried out their own interrogations and evidence collecting. When the two men arrived at the home of Sir Oakes, the bloody handprints that were reported were being scrubbed from the walls by local police. When the private investigators inquired why, they were informed that the decision was made by the two Miami detectives to remove any prints other than the accused, a decision that seemed strange at the time given that the case had not been decided and the handprints had not been properly investigated. The trial began and the jury would decide the fate of DeMarini based on the evidence presented. The trial brought the eyes of the world on the small island of Nassau and the courtroom was so crowded that people were photographed arriving with their own chairs to ensure they had a seat. Author Earl Stanley Gardner, creator of the fictional TV lawyer Perry Mason, was even hired by the Miami Daily News to cover the event. The prosecutors presented their case to the jury, and it was simple. Count Alfred de Marigny, a much older man, sets his sights on the much younger daughter of a wealthy tycoon and kills him. And there were the fingerprints, collected from the crime scene belonging to the count known as Exhibit J. The jury wouldn't need much time to deliberate based on the prosecution's case, but the defense was still to start their line of questioning. The defense and prosecution each called their witnesses and did their best to convince the jury. The court was filled with whispers and murmurs of speculation. Then, Lady Oaks took the stand and a pin dropping could be heard. She wore an all-black dress, hat, sunglasses, and testified that she and her husband made the decision to alter their will after Nancy eloped with her new husband. Seemingly, she found it hard to speak about Nancy without getting emotional. The prosecution probably thought of only the emotional impact that having her on the stand would inflict on the jury, and did not consider that her testimony helped the defense's argument. If their will had been changed to exclude Nancy and her husband, then killing Oaks wouldn't make much sense, as they would both gain nothing from it. The man of the hour took a seat on the stand and was calm and elegant while providing his testimony, and claimed he had only visited the home without Nancy present when the two Miami detectives questioned him at Westbourne Mansion. He spoke of the dinner party hosted at his home that evening, and how he tried and failed to invite Howard Christie, but he had already made plans with Harry Oakes. He talked about his relationship with Nancy, their marriage, her failed pregnancy, and his relationship with Sir and Lady Oakes. For a man dealing with being suspected of his father-in-law's murder, he handled the situation well. The defense then questioned the man who discovered the gruesome scene, Howard Christie. Christie testified that he never left Westbourne Mansion that evening, but the defense had a witness, Superintendent of the Bahamas Police Force, Captain Edward Sears, who testified under oath that he had seen Mr. Christie on the night in question in a car while he patrolled the streets that night. Christie spent his entire life on the island of Nassau, and being a member of parliament and one of the island's wealthier inhabitants, he wasn't easily mistaken by a seasoned officer of the police force. Christie's behavior while on the stand was described as nervous. He perspired greatly and shifted in his seat. 
He refuted the testimony from the police superintendent, Captain Edward Sears, who'd seen him driving that night as a case of mistaken identity. DeMarini testified that he had called Howard Christie that night to invite him to his own dinner party, but Christie declined, stating he was to dine and spend the night with Oaks, to which Christie claimed was a false accusation. He had only decided to sleep there that night once the weather had turned. On the night Sir Oaks was murdered, Howard Christie slept soundly no more than 15 feet away from his bedroom and claimed he heard or smelled nothing the night of the murder besides waking once to sweat a mosquito that had bitten him. He never heard the sound of a man being bludgeoned to death and set on fire. But while being questioned by the defense, Howard Christie's target began to grow larger. Howard Christie was a massive figure of the Bahamian establishment, a real estate mogul and member of government who represented the House of Assembly. Although he discovered the body, was the only person present in the house at the time of the murder, he was never considered a reasonable suspect. They already had their man. All they needed to do was stand by the damning piece of evidence, Exhibit J, the fingerprint of Count Alfred de Marigny. It all began to crumble for the prosecution's case as the defense began their cross-examination of the two Miami detectives, whose evidence and testimonies were to be the proverbial nails in de Marigny's coffin. But something very different occurred. As the defense questioned the detectives, other disturbing facts emerged. One of them being, the fingerprinting expert arrived in the Bahamas without the aid of his fingerprinting equipment. Instead of using modern methods of evidence collecting, they used scotch tape and claimed to have uncovered the fingerprint on a piece of furniture inside the home of Sir Oaks belonging to the Count. The photographs of the bloody handprints on the walls were also conveniently destroyed while being developed in Florida. The most illuminating line of questioning came, when the detectives were asked when exactly the discovery of the fingerprint was made and when did they first interrogate the Count. Not only were the stories of the two men conflicting, but they clearly did not follow proper procedure to collect and follow evidence. Because of the humidity in the Bahamas, the fingerprint would have started to break down within the time it took the detectives to interrogate de Marigny, but this fingerprint was fresh and would have had to been obtained at a much later date than the two men were willing to admit. They couldn't agree on the location as to where on the screen it was taken from, whether the print was discovered before or after the Count's interrogation, and the tainted evidence cast a shadow of doubt over the first case in the Bahamas that would allow a fingerprint to be entered as evidence. The prosecution's case unraveled, and the two detectives' testimony and the evidence carried far less weight. Last to be called to the stand was Nancy Oakes herself, who, like her mother, drew the attention of everyone when she entered the courtroom. Her fiery red hair, deep-set eyes, and fashionable choices of dresses she wore to court each day made her a welcomed attraction for reporters and onlookers who compared her to Catherine Hepburn. Nancy stood by her man and defended her husband's innocence vigorously. She was considered overly dramatic by some for nearly feigning multiple times during the course of her testimony. Once she concluded answering questions from the defense and prosecution, she left the courtroom before the jury deliberated. Like Police Commissioner Erskine Lindrop, who was transferred midway into the investigation, another man involved with the case would be absent from its trial, the governor. And although he had overseen the direction of the investigation and personally hired the two detectives to carry out the official inquiry, he was never asked to appear in court, as he had left the Bahamas making himself unavailable for questioning during the trial. After 25 days, the jury took two hours to deliberate based on the evidence and testimonies. The packed courtroom filled with world-class reporters, locals, and public figures on the island waited as the verdict was read aloud. Not guilty. A loud chair erupted over the courtroom, spilling outside into the waiting crowd. 
The defense was able to convince the jury very easily that their client, Count Alfred de Marigny, was being framed for a crime that he did not commit. Alfred de Marigny would not hang for the murder of Sir Harry Oakes. He was now a free man. But there was one stipulation that followed, and that was due to what the jury perceived was his playboy, morally skewed lifestyle. That he was not living up to the standards the colony required, and he was ordered to leave the island of Nassau immediately, which he did, following his acquittal. There were even more unanswered questions after the trial. There's the matter of the two detectives who should have been charged with perjury and the manipulation of evidence, but they returned to Florida, reputations intact, always steadfast that they had recovered the fingerprint in the matter they described. Were the two Miami detectives solely to blame for the mishandled evidence and subsequent fabrication, or were they given orders from a higher power? Was the Duke of Windsor connected, or was he just trying to lessen the humiliation he suffered being governor of the island, a station far beneath what he was accustomed to? The island where he received no publicity related to his duties other than the murder of one of its wealthiest citizens and the blacklisting of his friend, Werner Gren. The Duke of Windsor would intervene in the case one more time, and that was so that he could seal the case from ever being reopened again. No other suspects were ever looked into and no one was ever held accountable for the murder of Sir Harry Oakes. Oakes's life and murder would become a play, a movie, and the subject matter for numerous books. Forensic and legal experts would give their opinions on the evidence, hoping to solve the crime. But to this day, nearly a century later, no one is any closer to the answer. There were many theories surrounding this case, and I couldn't fit them all into one podcast, so I focused on the most popular. One author suggested money was being laundered in a scheme involving Christie, Oakes, and the Duke of Windsor. Oakes discovered the men were secretly funneling money to the Nazis, threatened to expose them, and the men conspired to have Oakes killed. Another author wrote that American Mafia bosses Lucky Luciano and Maya Lansky wanted to build casinos in the Bahamas on land that Oakes owned, and when he wouldn't agree to sell, the mob bosses had him murdered. There was also a theory that a rather large loan was being called in by Oakes that he had given to Howard Christie. Oakes was considering moving his family and businesses to Mexico and needed to divest in any projects in the Bahamas. But Christie needed the funds to ensure his passion project, Lyford Key, an area of homes for the rich and famous on the western edge of the island was not derailed in any way, so he murdered Oakes to protect his interest. The Count and Nancy, after leaving the Bahamas, settled in Cuba. They lived with author Ernest Hemingway for a time, but eventually he and Nancy divorced soon after. Demarigny then moved to Quebec at the end of the war, where he served in the military for a time before being asked to leave by the Quebec Immigration Authority for unknown reasons. He was involved with two novels that recounted the murder of his famous father-in-law, where he explains his innocence and his own theories on the murder and those involved. After living in various countries, he would come to settle in South America, where he would have children and remarry. He died in the U.S. at the age of 86. Howard Christie, a personal friend to Oaks, the man who discovered the body, would go on to become one of the wealthiest landowners in the Bahamas. Taking over where Oaks left off, he continued to develop some of the country's most coveted buildings and properties while generously giving to numerous charities across the Bahamas. Howard Christie would go on to develop other islands and keys of the Bahamas, bringing jobs and economic prosperity to the country, for which he would eventually be rewarded by Queen Elizabeth II with the title of Sir, just as his friend Sir Harry Oakes was by the Queen's father. Today, the name Christie is synonymous with high-quality real estate sold to only the wealthiest individuals of discerning taste. Howard Christie died a very wealthy man 
well-respected across the globe when he collapsed in Frankfurt, Germany while on a business trip. He was 77 years old. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor would eventually leave the islands of the Bahamas in 1945 when the Duke once again gave up his post, deciding to retire in France with his wife. He never again held an official post after his role as governor and lived off the hospitality of the French government and an allowance from the British monarchy. He passed away at his home at the age of 77. His wife, Wallace Simpson, would follow in 1986 at the age of 89. Nancy Oakes received an inheritance of $2 million from her father's estate and an additional allowance of $12,000 a year. She was now a very wealthy woman and sought to escape the shadow of her father's murder. Nancy would marry two more times after her failed marriage to the Count. The second was a baron from Germany, making her a baroness, and the third to a European businessman. Nancy's life came to a close at 81 years old. Sir Oakes's oldest son, Sidney, inherited his father's title and used his large inheritance to purchase real estate and start businesses in the Bahamas just like his father did before him, one of which became the country's largest bottling company. But while driving his sports car in Nassau, Sidney was killed at the age of 39 when he hit a utility pole. William Pitt Oakes, like his brothers and sisters, received the absolute best education and went on to become the director of the largest tin mine in Zimbabwe, the Kamatavi Mines. But like his father and brother, William Pitt Oakes would die too soon. While visiting New York, he suffered a heart attack brought on by liver complications and died days later at the age of 27. Harry Philip Oakes was humble, and even after he received his inheritance, he worked for a friend's accounting firm and studied medicine. But eventually, he had to focus his efforts on the running of his family's immense holdings. He died at the age of 72. Oakes's other daughter, Shirley, would go on to graduate from Yale, becoming a well-respected businesswoman who was the director of the British Colonial Hotel in the Bahamas, the very same hotel her father purchased and renovated when he first arrived on the island of Nassau. She would meet an unfortunate fate when she was left in a coma from a car accident and died in 1986. Gertrude Oakes was Harry's sister who funded his earlier mining projects before he became a wealthy man. He had repaid his sister with shares in Lakeshore Mines and she worked as a treasurer for the company and enjoyed traveling. But she died in 1935 while on board the cruise ship SS Mohawk, which accidentally collided with another ship, killing 45 on board, including Gertrude. The Oaks family today still has involvement in real estate and development. His grandchildren, Harry and Philip Oaks, own and operate the Clifton Hill Amusement Park in Niagara, Ontario and other descendants of the great Sir Harry Oakes have backgrounds in construction and the arts. The estate of Sir Harry Oakes still owns the Jacaranda House in the Bahamas, which can still be visited today, and has mainly gone unchanged for the last 100 years. Oak Hall in Kirkland Lake, Ontario, was purchased from the estate of Harry Oakes and converted into the Museum of Northern History and the headquarters for the Niagara Parks Commission. It's no wonder this subject matter fascinates creatives who retell the story in their own way, the richest man in the Bahamas, a former king of England and his socialite wife, a playboy foreigner who crashes his way into a wealthy family through their younger daughter, unscrupulous detectives from Florida, private investigators, money, intrigue, and a violent murder left unsolved for over half a century. The characters involved were like those from a movie, a fantastic whodunit just lacking a satisfying ending. Passion in Paradise is a great live-action interpretation of the story. Directed by Harvey Hart, starring Armand Asante and Catherine Mary Stewart, this film brings the characters of the story to life.
and tune in every two weeks for another Bahamian crime story or folktale. And remember, it's not always sunny in the Bahamas. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain, and thanks for listening. <laughs>